Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You open up your Bibles and take out the Word of God. Remember, this is God's Word to His people. So we continue our series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. How many of you are excited about Easter? It actually starts next. Pastor Jet's going to be sharing a five-part series with us, so don't miss it. Make sure you're inviting your neighbors, your friends out. Get those yard signs out there and invite somebody out to hear the word of the Lord. We're not here to share stories. We're here to share truth. The truth of God's word transforms lives. And so as we open now to another hard saying, we'll be in Matthew chapter 8. Verses 18 to 22, you know, there is a perception by many, and probably some of you can relate to this even now, we have the wrong impression of the goodness, the kindness, the good-naturedness of a God whose loving kindness is actually what draws us to him in repentance. Many people have had their relationship with God at least initially formed by a pagan view of who God is. Is God actually stone cold hearted? Is he simply a omniscient being who dwells in heaven, who does not touch us, who really could care less about his creation? Or does God actually divinely love us? This passage, just a handful of verses, gives us some insight into the heart of God. And at the same time, it challenges us in the area of discipleship. And so I begin by asking you today, Is there anything in your life that you are unwilling to surrender to follow Christ? Would you pray with us? Father, thank you. Lord, for those watching online, those here in the sanctuary, maybe in the multi-purpose room or one of the overflows. God, we're knit together by your Holy Spirit during this time and we pray that you would speak to us. But your word would be clear. But you would place truth in our hearts about who you are. What it costs to follow you. And at the same time, that you would dispel the myth that you are cold-hearted, self-absorbed, much like the ancient pantheons of pagan gods. Lord, we know you're not like that, so speak to us. Encourage your church, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, Matthew chapter 8. And I want you to read this with me carefully. 
And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he said, Vamos amigos. Let's bounce. We're out. You see, some look at this, and that's exactly how they interpret this passage. He gave the command to depart to the other side. It's as if Jesus saw the multitudes. He's fed them. He's spoken to them. He's taught them. He's moved through what we call traditionally the Sermon on the Mount, which contains the Beatitudes. He spent all this time with the multitudes, and one could make the assumption that what Jesus is now doing is saying, look, like, I'm, I'm over it, I'm done. And you can almost see in this conversation how Jesus hears, kind of like I get every once in a while, Pastor Chet will tell you the same thing, can I just have five minutes? One more question. It's almost as if, in a human sense, Jesus may have said, you know, it's, I need a break. You people are wearing me out. But is that what Jesus is saying here? And then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Really? Are you sure? You positive about that? How do we know that? The words of Jesus. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man is homeless. Has no place Nowhere to lay his head. And then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. There's this exchange here with Jesus and this group of disciples that could lead one to think that maybe Jesus is just tired and worn out and kind of doesn't want to speak to these guys. Part of that is because of how we view God. How we think about an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being who actually is the one true God. Maybe you read this and like many do, see Jesus as disconnected, maybe even disaffected, emotionless, perhaps even stoic or self-absorbed, maybe even a little capricious, mean-spirited. It's like, come on, Jesus, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The guy just asked you, hey, can I do my dad's funeral? Doesn't really sound like a loving God to me. If you take it out of context. If you lack understanding. And it really is amazing to me personally 
how many people, frankly myself included, when I was a young boy, when I was a teenager, I had a fairly pagan view of God. I believed God sat in heaven, and we were kind of like his science experiment. We were here on earth. We, we began to you know, be affected by this omniscient, omnipotent God. And he simply ruled over me. He could do what he wanted. And in fact, most of the time, he was actually mad at me. And he wanted stuff from me. This actually comes from deep within the human soul. And in fact, This very view is what you have when you look at the Greek and the Roman pantheon. If you take the Greek god Zeus, it's a book if you choose to read uh, some works that will put you to sleep at night, you can read the works of Hesiod in his book called Work and Days. Zeus is kind of this carefree god who loves to laugh and he dwells on Mount Olympus. But he was also very capricious. And so if he had a bad day and the people weren't doing what he wanted them to do or if he wasn't pleased with them, then he would interact with them very harshly. It's as if his character could change. He was easily angered. He, in fact, lusted after mortal beings and frequently had affairs with mortal women. And so it basically determined the human existence and how they viewed their God. You had to be in the right place at the right time on Zeus's good day if you were going to have a good day. If you caught him on a bad day, bummer on you. That progressed to the Roman pantheon. All these things are very pagan. And in terms of Roman mythology, they simply took Zeus, made him into Jupiter, and now you have this group of gods. Jupiter has some brothers, two of them, Neptune and Pluto. They govern various parts of the what we would call God's creation, the sky and the sea. Pluto ruled the planets, the underworld. And so the Romans kind of had a separate God for every situation. And in the same way, people often try and separate out Jesus, God's Son, from God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and kind of like, well, Jesus is kind of in charge of stuff going on on earth, and God's kind of in charge of stuff in heaven, and the Holy Spirit is in charge of stuff that we can't see, And in the same way, these pagan influences have crept into our understanding of who God is. And so Jesus is actually not like that. And the problem that we have is we have taken these pagan views and adopted them into our cultural understanding of who God is. And so as the Romans began to progress, what they did was... They turned Jupiter into the supreme being who also was their supreme ruler. 
And so the Caesars began to be the living representation of Jupiter. So when you travel to Rome and you go to the Capitoline Hill, you will see the temple of Jupiter. And that was where the emperors did their business. So when Caesar Augustus wanted to invoke a law that would challenge the people of the Roman Empire, he would swear by Zeus. And so he became Jupiter Maximus Optimus. And so they blended, and here's where it gets important, church, an understanding of God and government. They made the Caesar a representative of both heaven and civil government. In 386 AD, we have the first Christian Caesar. All of a sudden, you have this change during the time of Constantine, followed by Augustine. Guess what's birthed out of that? The Roman Catholic Church. Which for the better part of a millennia shaped the politics of the world. You see, we have adopted many of these things into our thinking so that God is no longer the God of heaven and earth. God is a God of our own making. And so we make him president. We make him the ruler of the EU. We make him the ruler of the UN. We make him in charge of the World Food Bank and the World Health Organization. We make God into something that's much smaller than he actually is and far more capricious as if he only cares about those who are already his. Church, this is a fatal flaw in the thinking of many American Christians. And it's time for it to die. God is concerned with every single person on the planet, especially the lost. He's not happy with one group because they have a Christian republic that has a form of democracy and he hates another group because they're Muslims. He loves Muslim people and desires for them to know him personally. He loves Hindu people and he desires for them to know him personally. The problem is the church is unwilling to yield their freedoms for the cause of the gospel. Notice the question. What's keeping you from wholeheartedly serving the king? You see, we have to be careful. Because God wants to be God. He does not want to be reduced to the president of the United States. That is so far beneath his dignity 
and we need to be really careful. Just because we happen to live in what I would agree with most of you who would believe the greatest nation on earth, the Bible plainly teaches that not everyone is a Christian. Plainly teaches that until Jesus comes again, there will be believers and unbelievers on this earth. And so the foolishness to make a country into God is exactly what the Romans did. Be careful. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. Because God cares for every soul in every country. Does Jesus care about me? That's the real question. As believers, no one is exempt from the storms of life. Amen? If you haven't learned that yet, you will. If you haven't had your own personal tornado sweep through your life, you will. If you haven't gone through times of difficulty, even as a believer, you will. And it does not mean that God doesn't love you. Matter of fact, it may actually be his perfect will for you that you're going through that storm. It may be that storm is the very thing that God wants to use to shape your character, to mold you into his image. You see, too many people look at God just like the Romans did. When God is being good to me, I have his favor. But when God asks me to do something hard, or I go through a difficult time, Maybe God doesn't love me. God's character is such that he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. That bad things, horrible things, happen to wonderful people that love Jesus. There will always be rich and poor. There will always be good and evil until Jesus comes again. The Bible is very clear that the days are evil, but Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen? So the focus here is on our relationship with Jesus. What's holding you back from wholeheartedly serving the king? Is it that he didn't give you what you want? Is it that you're going through a time of sickness, a time of trouble? Is there something in your life that, like this man, you might say, well, wait, I've got something else I need to do that's more important than following you, Jesus. Jesus will take them out into a boat He's given them this command to depart to the other side. So they're in Galilee. They're on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're likely at 
Capernaum or Tabka, which are next to one another. And they're about to head towards the other shore. When they say the other shore, it's actually an axiom for the Jewish people. That's where the unbelieving, un-Jewish people lived, the land of the Gadarenes, Gadara. This is where Jesus will encounter this demon-possessed man. This is where they raised swine. They were unclean. Jesus is about to go there. And the people start to ask questions. What will it cost me? Short answer, it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Everything. Holding nothing back. Ministry is not measured by multitudes. It's measured by ones. In that sense, it is binary. It's single integers. The body of Christ is made up of them who are saved daily. Amen? That's the body of Christ. We happen to be blessed to be in the midst of a large congregation. We are a mega church, if you want to look at it that way. But just because we're large, we have to be careful that we're not resting on that fact. Because this church will never be greater than you are personally with Jesus. It's resting on each of us being a disciple sold out for the cause of Christ. It isn't dependent on me. It never was. It wasn't dependent on Pastor Steve. It wasn't dependent on Pastor Chuck. It will not be dependent on Pastor Chet. It depends on you. You being a sold out disciple. You being willing to surrender all to follow Christ. You being willing to do the work of the gospel. If you're waiting for me to do it for you, we're all in trouble, right? Right? Say amen. 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 Nobody could handle that. That's why we need the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer as we work together to accomplish God's things. But if I am unwilling to yield and you are unwilling to yield, then our unyieldedness to the work of the Holy Spirit will prevent both of us from going where God wants us to go. That's why this is a hard saying. Notice this scribe, this man. Now, scribes, in a, in a lot of ways, we could identify, they're really the equivalent of a religious attorney. For the most part, they interpreted the law. They helped the Sanhedrin by giving them proper interpretation of the Old Testament. In fact, we have a biblical character, Ezra, who was a scribe. Wrote a book. The priests were the official interpreters, but the scribes actually formed the opinions that everyone would ultimately take home with them. They were kind of the brainiacs. They were deep thinkers. 
The scribes concerned themselves with sacred writings. They're the ones that looked over the history. They're the ones that took great care to make sure that the journals that contained the the genealogy and the lineage of Jewish people were kept. They were meticulous in their thinking. And this is important to this particular situation. The reason this is hard is you cannot say that this man didn't think this through. And that is actually part of the problem. He thought too much. Are you prone to think more than you pray? Are you prone to think more than rely on the Holy Spirit? Are you prone to just simply work out an understanding with your own mind? If you are, then you're much like the scribe. It's one of those weaknesses that I myself have struggled with in my walk with the Lord. I'm one of those people, I think through everything. Matter of fact, I think through things too much. If you were to talk to Connie, she would go, he thinketh too much in King James. (laughs) You see, thinking's not the problem. It's thinking instead of relying on the Holy Spirit that's the problem. We often see the scribes siding with the Pharisees. And of course, we know from the gospel accounts, the Pharisees were in essence the arch enemies of Jesus because they were legalists. So when you take a legalist with a brilliant thinker and you put those two together, guess what you have? Argument city. Right? So you take a brilliant mind and put it together with a legalist who already has a formed opinion about something, and you let them work together, now you have legalism that is absolutely now confirmed by the great thinking. Be careful. Because virtually every legalist you will ever run into will also have very sound reasoning for why they're a legalist. They'll work through the minutia. So look where he's at. Let me. Can I tell you something? That's actually the problem. It's not about you. Not about me either. It's about Jesus. Whenever I put let me in front of something that I need to do before I get to Jesus, I have a functional problem. It should be, Jesus, what do you think? Holy Spirit, instruct me. God's word, what do you say? Instead of let me. That means you've already decided. You've already made up your mind. You've already enforced an argument. And you're going to now present that argument as if you're an attorney in court. It's like, here's the reason, Jesus, I can't follow you. Notice how Jesus deals with this particular situation. Well, personally, I'm homeless. You you see that let me, when Jesus, who is the son of man, now kind of comes into question, doesn't it? 
You see, Jesus wants us to understand who he is. He uses here, this is the first time this particular title is used in all of the Bible. It will be used 87 more times. Jesus has three son of titles in scripture. As the son of man, he's identifying with you and me. This is his racial name, if you want to look at it that way. He's saying, I am a human being. I am one of you. In that sense, he's just like us. And as he says that, he says, and the son of man, the one who's just like you, though being God, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What are you going to be asked to give up in your life to follow Jesus becomes the question. Because Jesus gave up everything for you, including his life. Of those three names, he's also known as the son of David. To the Jewish people, very important, because that's his royal name, right? To the Jewish person, you're going, you're claiming to be Messiah. But he's also known as the Son of God, amen? That's his divine name. So he, in essence, when he speaks of himself, he's saying, I'm one of you. I am the rightful holder to the throne of David. I'm Messiah. And I'm God's own son. That makes him very different than Zeus or Jupiter or any religious ruler on the face of the earth. Any country and all of its combined Christendom contained within it all pales in comparison when Jesus says, I'm one of you, but I'm also God's son. And I don't have any place to lay my head. Now, the crazy thing is, unlike Zeus, Zeus would have said, okay, I'm taking somebody's bed. Jupiter would have said, I'm going to make a law and I'm going to take enough tax money to where I'm going to get everything that you have and then some, and all your neighbors too. When Christ came to the earth, he came as a babe in a manger. And when he died, he hung between two criminals. But when he was raised... He was raised in the full glory of God. Amen? So when he comes back, he's coming back in glory. But while he was here, he chose to identify with your pain and your sorrow and your difficulty and your weaknesses and mine too. And so if Jesus can do what he's asking then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can also do what he's asking. Because that same Holy Spirit is now in you as a believer. You have the capacity to do what God asks you to do. The question is, will you do it? Will you do it? Will you surrender to what God wants to do in your life? Finally, what can we learn from this passage? 
this man had a rival god. It was family. He had a rival god. Now, you may be thinking, well, Pastor Jeff, that's a little extreme. You might think so, but if you understand a Jewish funeral, the context here is this man may not even have lost his father yet. It appears from the original language that this is a hypothetical question. He's not actually saying his father is dead yet. He's saying, I want to go back to my home, and when my father dies... I want to make sure that I'm there to bury him. Now, for a funeral during that time, because when you died, they buried you immediately. You can imagine why. No mortuaries, no embalming. You really didn't want a dead body sitting around in your house for weeks on end. Unlike what we do, sometimes people pass and they go home to be with the Lord, and the funeral isn't for a month. That would never happen during this time. They were buried instantaneously, generally before the sun went down, at the worst, the following day. But then what happened? Ten days of mourning, followed by the reading of the will and the distribution of assets. So there's a lot more in this situation than first meets the eye in our Western thinking. You see, this man was actually making an excuse I have family obligations. I have stuff I need to do. There are things in my life, Jesus, that actually are superseding you. Now, does this mean that we can't honor our father and mother? No. Does this mean that you can't provide for a proper burial for your family? No. Does this mean that you shouldn't be kind to those who are in this situation? Absolutely not. But that wasn't the issue with this man. The issue with this man was, I'm really not willing to set aside this area of my life. It's more important than you are, Jesus. The rival claims of father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, all can stand in the way of following Christ. I want to be very careful here. And as a leader, I teach this and preach this. Family actually is first in ministry. It's what the Bible says. If I'm a lousy father, I got no business being a pastor. Amen? If I can't rule my own home well, that's exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy, then I shouldn't be a pastor. So it's not about not taking care of your family. It's about the overemphasis of that. It's about me being unwilling to yield to the Holy Spirit when God tells me, look, it's time for you to go to war, Jeff. It's time for you to battle in that area. It's time for you to set aside those things that you think are more important in this moment. It's interesting to me that if you enlist in our armed forces, 
you actually will have to, you'll be forced to leave your father and mother and leave your home and leave your children and go someplace where your commanding officer has told you to go. Amen? It's part of the military. Cannot we give the same dedication to Jesus? If the Holy Spirit calls us into some difficult situation, is there not grace sufficient for our discipleship? And I I say to you, there is. You see, this man was saying, well, I'll do everything but. There were financial considerations for him to make, for sure. He may actually lose out on part of the inheritance. If you weren't there when the will was read, you forfeited your portion. There were certainly family considerations. But Jesus, remember, said, follow me. He didn't say, follow me next week. He didn't say, follow me after you think about it. He said, follow me. And the reason this is important is when God speaks, we're supposed to not just listen, but do it. Because if you're going to debate at this stage, if you're going to get to that place where you say, well, you know, I'm not sure about this whole following Jesus thing, then when he asks you to give something up that's difficult, you're really not going to do that. This is about who's first. And Jesus wants to be first. So it is a hard saying. When people say, well, it's my body. No, it's not. It's his. Well, it's my money. No, it's not. It's his. It's my car. No, it's not. It's his. It's my house. No, it's not. It's his. As a believer, those, those statements are untrue. Everything you have, possess, you are simply steward over, including your very life. Amen? It's him first. So when he brings someone into your life and he says, yeah, sure, tell them about me. Well, you know, Lord, I got this. I got to do that. Jesus wants to be first, church. That's why it's so important. We have an opportunity. We, we, we are coming to the Easter season next Sunday begins that season for us. It's Palm Sunday. I guarantee you that every one of you is being asked to bring somebody to church. I guarantee it. There is a word from the Lord that somebody needs to hear. Will you invite them? It's up to you. This place can be so packed out that we have the overflows totally filled. I mean, we're pretty full today. But there's plenty of room. Will you do it? Will you say yes? Or will you say, no, i got to go bury my dad. Jesus is asking you to sign a letter of intent. When you go to college and you're applying for scholarship, you get a letter, it's called a letter of intent, and once you sign it, you're going to that school. Jesus signed his part of that letter of intent with his own blood. 
will you sign with yours? He wants to be first. He does not want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to pray over you and pray over us as a church. Father, I know, Lord, there have been times when I have failed at this very thing. And I admit that to you, Lord, in front of these people. These fellow members of of your family. Lord, we want to do better. We want you to be first. Now, Lord, this is a hard saying. This seems like a fair and a right thing to do. And we know you're not like Zeus or Jupiter, God. You're not just sitting there putting things on us for a good chuckle. Lord, you love us. And you want to use us for your glory. And you're asking, you're inviting us to follow you with everything that we have. And so, Lord, I I pray over us and for us and for myself, Lord, let there be nothing that holds us back from serving you. And if there is, Lord, help us to lay it down. Help us to forsake, Lord, those things which will keep us from following hard after you. Lord, this scribe missed out on this day. We don't want to be like him. And if you had no place to lay your head, Lord, if you ask us to do that, you'll give us grace. If you ask us to have much so it can be used for your kingdom, you'll give us grace. And so, Lord, pour out your grace upon us. Speak to us, God, so that we can be more used of you. We ask all of this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.